recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. Well, the summer of 1979 was a time of innocence and anxiety. That fall, I was to enter the seventh grade at Siloam Springs High School, junior high. There were mythical stories of of ninth graders who would flush the heads of incoming students or clip our belts to the flagpole rope and hoist us up to the flap in the wind as our peers saluted. None of these hazings actually materialized, but the rumors were terrifying enough to me to remain pretty vivid all these 44 years later, as you can see. Well, our family trip to St. Louis that summer may have been taken in celebration of my graduation from Northside Elementary, but it felt more like a last wish granted to a young man who's been condemned. We took in a Cardinals game where they retired the legendary Lou Brock's number, and then we made that obligatory visit to the St. Louis Arch. Now, I don't know how long we waited in line for the elevator. All lines feel interminable to a sixth-grade boy. But when we finally entered the tiny car and the doors began to close, my father started gasping for air and bolted back out in a wheezing fit of claustrophobia. I didn't know my dad was scared of anything until that moment. I probably still can't appreciate what it cost him to catch his breath in front of all those impatient tourists, re-enter the little windowless room, and ride with us up to the top. Maybe you can relate to dad's fear of tight spaces. Or maybe your fears work in opposite ways, like Temple Grandin's. Do you know her? She's a brilliant writer, teacher, and animal husbandry researcher. Dr. Grandin is also on the autism spectrum. And some of the breakthroughs she made in her field arose from how she dealt with the anxiety she experienced in college. One day she witnessed how cows will grow calm when their bodies are held in what's called a squeeze chute, a kind of metal cage whose sides close in gently on the animal's ribcage until she can't move. This would have been the ultimate torture device for my father. But Temple made a hug machine out of plywood and pulleys that she kept in her dorm room. When she began to feel overwhelmed, she'd crawl in and pull the rope. Her heart racing would slow Her breathing would calm as her invention held her body tight. The same world can register as very different fears in the minds and bodies of different people, can't it? And those fears may require different strategies to ease them. Do your fears ignite when the world's closing in too tightly or when you're feeling unmoored, unheld, disconnected? It's helpful to know how our fears work if we're to keep them from taking over, especially in a world with whole industries and institutions that know they can control our wills if they gain control of our fears. Christians say the resurrection of Jesus, that in it the power of sin and death in our lives is broken. And I've come to believe this is theological language about the deep seats and sources of our fears. Dad's body told him there wasn't enough oxygen to live on in that elevator car. The fear of death really can come crashing into this moment in which we're very much alive, 
and taken over. Temple Grandin feared that given her different ways of processing the world, she'd never measure up or be deemed worthy of a place among the so-called normal folks. Fear that our inadequacies and failures define us and make us unworthy is different from that fear of death, but it can be just as debilitating. My spiritual director says we have to find ways to change the storyline sometimes. What I'm wondering this Easter morning is whether the resurrection still has power to change the storylines that produce the fears we carry in our bodies and in our minds. Which is to say, I'm wondering if the resurrection has saving power in lives like ours as we actually live them out today. You may know that the resurrection storylines are a little different in each of the four Gospels. For example, in John, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb alone in the dark and sees that the stone's already been rolled away. In Luke, she's accompanied by Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and several other unnamed women that go to the tomb at dawn with spices. In Mark, it's the two Marys and a woman named Salome who arrive with their spices when the sun had already risen. And in Matthew's account, which we read today, it's just Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, and there's an earthquake no one else has mentioned. And an angel appears, rolls back the stone, and sits down on it, all right in front of the women and the guards who become like dead men. They're so afraid of what they've all just seen. If you're a Sergeant Friday type and want just the facts, these differences can be unsettling. I also used to think they were flaws in the story, but I've come to wonder whether the church preserved these differences because it wanted the power of this resurrection to reach different people with their different lives and fears. Gustav Mahler said, tradition is tending the flame, not worshiping the ashes. The Christian scriptures themselves seem to have preserved this practice of tending to the resurrection's flame by tweaking the storyline based on the community who was trying to see by its light. Worshiping the ashes, I suppose, would have meant mummifying the good news of the resurrection into a single account for one kind of life. Matthew tells us that everything the women witnessed that morning, the earthquake, the angel rolling back the stone and sitting down, all of it registered as fear and great joy. The fear we understand We understand some of the joy if it's the news that their friend is no longer dead. But something more than having a few more days with Jesus is happening. A shift in a deeper storyline seems to be taking place. Their friend, Jesus, you may remember, didn't just die at the ripe old age of 33. He was crucified, executed publicly by the Roman Empire as an example The Gospels also preserve the hostilities within the Jewish community about this Jesus, sometimes altering the story to sound like Jesus was killed by the Jews, when in fact he and all his first followers were Jews. Storylines in family fights can also change in unhelpful ways. But the empire ruled through a version of the story all empires rule by. Empires ruled by the force of chariots and of tanks. They rule quite literally by holding the power of death over their subjects. Empires also get to determine what counts as sin, and therefore who must be punished, and how. 
And Roman power made a lot of sense given its founding myth. Do you know it? Romulus and Remus were the twin sons of Rhea, fathered by the war god Mars. King Amulius was threatened by the birth and ordered the twins drowned in the Tiber River. Sound familiar? But the infants were saved by a she-wolf and a woodpecker who suckled them until they were found. When the boys grew up, they built a city on the site where they'd been saved. One day, Romulus built a wall around it, and when his brother Remus jumped over, he killed him. Rome was named for Romulus, of course, the victor. Such was the Roman Empire storyline. It's the living brother who gets to rule, of course, not the dead one. But those Hebrew women at the tomb, they had a different origin story, didn't they? Their scriptures told of the first two brothers, the sons of Eve and Adam. Do you remember them? Cain and Abel both brought offerings, but God preferred the offering of Abel. Cain killed his brother in a fit of jealousy. The founding myth of Rome, like so many others, the victorious brother gets the city. But the Hebrews' God was different from the war god Mars. God told Cain, the victor, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And God did not give Cain a city. Rather, Cain would bear a mark so as not to be killed as he wandered the earth as a stranger to it. His curse was never to have a city to call home. The Hebrew story was the myth of Rome inverted. The Hebrews' God sided with the victim, not the victor, and even provided mercy to Cain. Good Friday was probably just another day in the Roman Empire as it wielded its power over sin and death on some insignificant hillside in Palestine, killing some rabbi who told stories it found dangerously different But we heard in our Good Friday prayers here that the power of sin and death in our lives is broken that day. Because the storyline that still seems so pervasive and persuasive shattered when that rabbi was raised from the dead. This past Good Friday, I turned 56. And I'm just one Christian, so take this for what it's worth. But living here in this beautiful and broken and soulful city that is also so plagued by violence, I'm ready to stop filling my imagination with stories of violent victors. And I mean this literally. I think I'm finished consuming uncomplicated myths and movies whose plots depend on the hope that the good guys are better armed and more dangerous than the bad guys because that old storyline still kills us. Sometimes it kills us with actual people with actual guns who actually believe killing is the way to a better world. But the violent story also shows up in all our minds and in our bodies in the form of fear, even when we're not looking down the barrel of a gun or strapping one to our thigh to look like some storybook hero. We're all on guard all the time. Even the violent victor only holds on to his power by looking over his shoulder. The fears of a sixth-grade boy, a middle-aged parent, a brilliant and autistic woman, and you and me are all a little different. 
I don't know whether a hug machine or a little fresh air will help ease the fears that gather today in your mind and your body. But I no longer believe any of us are healed ultimately by the storylines of Rome. And don't we all want some of what we saw when the fears of those women at the tomb were broken open with joy that Easter morning? I don't want to live by the story of the violent victors for a minute of whatever time I have left in this life. I want a life that listens to and longs for a deeper connection to the God of Abel. Don't you? A life that's fired by the power of the resurrection of Jesus. He taught us not to return evil for evil, violence for violence, harm for harm. And then he showed us what those teachings can look like, even in a life an empire is trying futilely to control. The one who showed us whether we've got 33 years on this earth or three times 33 years. What God desires is that the fear of sin and death be broken in your heart and in mine as a different, truer, eternal storyline takes them over completely and teaches those once fearful hearts the living way of vulnerable and self-giving love. Christ is risen, my friends. Christ is risen. The only work that's left for us to do is to walk away from the stories of the empire and commit together to being the people of Abel's God, the community of Jesus, and giving our fears over to His resurrection to be raised back up into this world as joy. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.